we're talking about the wonders of Christmas this Christmas season, and uh, this morning we're looking at the wonder of the incarnation, the fact that God came near. God came near. I want to slow us down just to consider what that means. Let's listen to this quotation from Augustine. People go abroad to wonder at the heights of the mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motions of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. You are a wonder. Shakespeare said through the mouth of Hamlet, what is this quintessence of dust? You are a wonder. Have you slowed down and stopped to think about the fact that God, the almighty God, who lies outside of all eternity, outside of all creation, God came near. What does that say about you? It says you're unworthy, but not worthless. From the word of God, Matthew chapter 1. Verses 17 through 23. Would you turn with me to uh, follow along in your scriptures, in your Bible, or on the screen? So the generations of, from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. May God bless us this morning through this, his holy word. Let us pray. God bless us now through your word, not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts to receive it, that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're asking the question this morning, why did God come near? Why did God come near? And the answer is this, to move us in the right direction. We're just going to break that down, to move us in the right direction. First of all, he came to move. He's a mover. He is the unmoved mover. Aquinas, who was another theologian like, uh, like Augustine, in the early church, Aquinas took uh, what um, Aristotle was, was doing to, to create for us a, a real uh, beautiful, uh, systematic way of thinking about life. And he incorporated philosophy into theology so beautifully well. And Aquinas built on this idea of God being the unmoved mover. 
that, that there is, like Archimedes said, if, if you give me a, a lever long enough and a place to stand, I can move the world. Do you see that image? You give me a lever long enough and a place to stand, I can move the world. It's an important image for you to understand because what we're talking about right here in this first part, that God is a mover. God uh, came as the incarnation. That means Jesus is God, fully God. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Colossians 2.9. So the, the first part of understanding the incarnation, understanding why God came near, is understanding who is it that came? Who is it that came? That Jesus is Lord of all creation. He was and is and is to come. He's fully God. There's an argument for, for God called the Kalam cosmological argument. It goes something like this. Everything that began to exist had a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, it has a cause. In other words, if you understand what that argument is, it's a simple syllogism. If you understand what that argument means, it means that there's something that transcends creation. That if for, for God to enter uh, for God to enter time, it means eternity is coming into time. That means that the person, the second person of the Trinity, not just the Godhead, but the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who was before all things, and in him all things hold together. Through him all things were created. That when, when Jesus became part of creation, he was not a new person. It was an eternal person entering into creation that had been created. So you see the image of, give me a lever and a place to stand. Anything that was created, that began to exist, had a cause. The cause, the unmoved mover, came into time. You know, there was a, there was a, a heresy or a, an errant view of God in the early church that cropped up because of the influence of the world around. Imagine that happening, right? <laughs> so a guy named Arius began to say, well, you know, th there, Jesus was not deity. Jesus was not fully God. He sort of, he, he became part of the creation, and as creation, he sort of, God just sort of uh, hyper-inspired him. And, uh, and, and so that began to spread, and, and then there was this, this council that came together, and they said, look, we've got to get this straight. And so they, they created this confession called the Nicene Creed. And, the, you know, if, if you go to a Catholic church, you'll hear it said. It's very much like our uh, Apostles' Creed. But it, it bears down on this issue that, that Jesus was very God of very God. The word, the Greek word is homoousian, that, that he's made of the same stuff, that he is an eternal being entering into time. And you say, well... That doesn't make real. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, the idea that that something great could enter into something small does that make sense? I mean, I, I can understand something small becoming something great, but something great becoming something small entering into to our existence. Well, actually, something great becoming small something small is, really has a test. You know, imagine this. You know, uh, uh, imagine a baby trying to relate to you as you. Um, as, as you read the editorial page, all right? There's your baby, and, and, and your baby is, is totally dependent on you. And imagine him just sort of, you know, just sort of leaning over 
like, like one of those kind of weird commercials, you know, and just sort of commenting on, on the editorial page. Not going to happen. But you can relate to that baby and that baby's needs. You are developed. You are great. You have, you have fully formed. You, you, you can relate to the lesser. The greater can relate to the lesser. Or let, let's think of it on, on an emotional level. Someone uh, sorrowful cannot relate and enter into the moment of someone joyful, but someone joyful can enter into a moment of sorrow with someone else. You see, the, the greater emotion, the, the higher emotion is, is joy, the highest emotion. The lower emotion is sorrow. And someone joyful can walk into a hospital room and not sing songs to a, a sorrowful, mournful heart, but, but enter in and empathize, enter into that moment but someone sorrowful can't just pivot into joy. You see, Jesus was fully God. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Bodily, it says in Colossians. This is what, this is what you see in verse 18. That what, what was born in Mary was from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, some, a man of great integrity took very seriously what this was, that, that Joseph validated what was happening here, was a witness to it. Now, he, he could, it was a big deal to be betrothed to someone, our, not like our engagement today. It was, it was very much like being married, and it was a, a, real so, uh, a very powerful social contract. And so uh, it, it says that he was going to you know, divorce her quietly and not uh, subject her to shame and scandal. He was a, a kind man. And then and then you can see it, this separate witness of Joseph. You see, the same Holy Spirit that brought to life the fullness of God within creation also spoke and witnessed to Joseph, who in turn lined up with God's plan. Jesus was fully God. He's the unmoved mover. He came to move. What did he come to move? Well, it, human hearts, <laughs> that's the answer. He came to move us. And if anything is going to, to move the human heart, you know it has to have something like a lever long enough and a place to stand. Jesus was fully God. He came to move us. He was also fully human. Now, I want to look at this in two different ways. First of all, you have to understand that Jesus was fully human in the sense of his body. He took on a human body. He was a man, a human being. But he also took on human nature. We're going to look at those two things real quickly here. So first of all, he, he became a human being, part of a genealogical record. Verse 17, it talks about the, the 14 generations and then, and then uh, from Abraham to David and then David to the exile and then the exile to, to, to the Messiah. And it's, it's, it's tidying up this, this prefigured, this uh, typological or this, this, this uh, prophesied Messiah that would come. But it's putting it right into the genealogy. And you say, well, that's, that's Joseph's genealogy. Now, if it's from the Holy Spirit, then, then how is he, you know, I understand that he's human, but, but how is he human if he's from the Holy Spirit? Did, but, well, if you look at Luke, you can see Mary's genealogy. And Mary's genealogy goes back to Abram as well. So you can see that he was fully God from the Holy Spirit. You can see that he's fully man. 
as part of creation, born of a virgin, Virgin Mary. Now, that means he's not just a theophany, like we talked last week of a, like sort of God just sort of having his presence mediated for, through part of creation, like a bush, like a burning bush, or a pillar of fire, or an angel, right? But that the person, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in human life, a body. And where do we get this? Well, we get this from the genealogical record, but we also get this from the fact that, that there is something unfolding, a plan that's unfolding, and that is that God would dwell with his people. And in the Old Testament, you can see that in the temple. Let's look back at, at, uh, at Solomon uh, that, um, that Tyler read earlier. Solomon says something very mysterious he says, now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father to sit on the throne of Israel. And the Lord promised, I have built, as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord. This is 1 Kings 8. The God of Israel, and there I have provided a place for the ark in which the covenant of the Lord he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so you can see he's... he's you know, David wanted to build the temple, but that was fulfilled with Solomon, right? Uh, without going into all that, you know, Solomon was, you know, David got a slap on the wrist. He wasn't able to, to build the temple, but Solomon built the temple, and in it was the Ark of the Covenant. And, and the Ark of the, of the Covenant was inside behind the veil, right? Behind the veil, in the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence would dwell. But then he says this, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. As he recognizes, there's something more. There's something coming. There's something bigger. That the, that, that this, the, the mystery of God, who is a person, is not just going to be mediated behind a veil, but the veil would be rent in two, that Jesus would present himself, that God in bodily form. But not only that, not only that, that Jesus would show up as, as a perfect man, but that he would put on imperfect nature. You say, whoa, 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 hang on, imperfect nature. I thought he was sinless. Well, he was sinless. But he put on human nature. If he entered into humanity, into the genealogical uh, stream, he put on human nature, sinful flesh. We have a nature, in other words, and this is so crucial. This is really like the pivotal point of this sermon is that you and I have a nature. We have human nature. But for the last 200 years, we have been in denial. By we, I mean the way we think about life. Since the Enlightenment, we have been denying that we have human nature. Rousseau is the one who, be, who really began to, to articulate this idea that, that we're born tabula rasa, or as blank slates, rather than being born with a particular kind of nature, a fallen nature, a broken nature, flawed nature. And he began to put on nurture all of humans' problems, all of uh, humanity's problems. 
It's all on nurture, not nature. And if we can get, just get nurture right, then we'll fix all of our problems, right? That was Rousseau. And we be, we've been building on this theme for the last couple hundred years. In, in, his, in this recent book called The Rise of the Modern Self, a uh, Grove City professor has, uh, has written one of the most important books, I think, of the last decade, where he, he talks about this progression from, from the Enlightenment, uh, from Rousseau and Nietzsche to uh, Darwin and Marx and Freud. And you begin to see this, this <laughs> reversion, this very sophisticated, very uh, layered and intellectual trip back to the garden where the simple message is this, I am my own. And you can see Eve just standing there looking at what evil is trying to say to her and looking what God is saying and saying, I am going to elevate myself, my own intellect, my own reason, and I am going to decide between these two. And this is the original problem that we've had. And it is just so ironic that in denying original sin, we're actually committing original sin. It's ridiculous. It's amazing. And that's where we stand to today. That, that we be believe that we can construct our own meaning. We're not doing very well with it. We believe that we can fix our problems just by social engineering. That the human heart is a blank slate that if we can just get the nurture right, then, then all of the issues that we're dealing with, all the social problems and, and all of the international the war and, and even disease, everything, we can just fix ourselves. You've heard this before, right? I mean, it's all throughout the Old Testament. And here we are again. And this is where I believe our social imaginary is today, is that we believe we belong to ourselves. And Jesus came as God all the way into human life to help us see that we belong to God. Emmanuel means God with us. And so Jesus came to move us in the right direction. That there is a direction. That there is a nature. We're born with a nature. And that's a problem. That we can't just consider that it's a blank, that's a, a nurture thing, and we can't just change all the rules to make everybody happy, which is what we're doing right now, but that, that, that in the midst of this, there is a nature that needs to be addressed. To be moved in the right direction, though, means you have to understand, where are you going? What is your chief end? If, if, if you're going to evaluate what is versus what should be, you have to know where those two things are headed. You have to know their chief end. What is our chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so if we're going to understand what a human being is for, we have to understand, if we're going to understand what, what we are doing along the way, we, we have to admit that we're not willing to name the problem. Today, we're not willing to name the problem. And the problem is we don't know in our social imaginary, in our culture, we, we don't know what a human being is for. 
our chief end is to glorify God. We're made God by God for God. But you can see a couple of different ways. You know, I, I, I think of the, um, I think of this scene in um, Alice in Wonderland where she talks to the Cheshire Cat, and I've got I've got this cat quote, quoted this morning. This will probably be the only time I'm quoting a cat in a sermon. Okay, so y'all pay attention here. This is it. I'm not a big cat fan. So Alice is is wandering around, and she doesn't know where to go. She says, would you tell me, please, she says to the Cheshire Cat, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? And he says to her, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. I don't care much where, said Alice. The cat says this, then it doesn't much matter which way you go. Well, that's where we are today, in our social imagination. A guy named uh, Amon Gearhouse has, has written a book that contrasts two different kinds of oppression of a human being. You know, if you think, well, I am my own, right? And if I, if I throw off all oppressors, then, then I am going to be free. Well, he draws this interesting contrast. Several years ago when Downton Abbey was really popular, there was another show that was also popular called Girls. Now, I haven't watched this show, but uh, I've read about it, okay? I promise. And so, so here's this contrast between Downton Abbey. Now, I, I've got to admit this, though. Uh, my wife and I are into Downton Abbey now, so we're watching. We're, we're kind of late to the game. We didn't watch it. We, we've been watching this. And, and this is a, a view of a, a, a social structure that was considered to be oppressive, right? The aristocracy. And so there was this social structure that, that brought order to human power and the, the darkness of human heart. There was a, an order to things, right? And you can watch during these episodes and during these seasons the, the casting off of the old order, right? And then at the same time, in, in this article in the New York Times, he's, he's talking about this other show called Girls. And this, in this show called Girls, there is no social order. It's like, we're going to make it all up. Like, I am my own and I'm going to figure it all out. It's all about personal autonomy. And what you see coming through in this show, he says, is, is a, a different and even maybe perhaps more oppressive kind of tyranny of freedom. The name of his article captures this whole thought. Freedom has its own constraints. Freedom has its own constraints. You see, we're not admitting the problem. You see, we're going to throw off the Downton Abbey aristocracy, and we're going to take on the, the, this, uh, the, the, the girl's kind of paradigm that says, I am my own, and I'm going to make up my own meaning. And we're not admitting that that doesn't work. We're not admitting it. And what we keep doing is trying to change all the rules and remove all the consequences of our of, of our decisions that we think are going to bring us greater freedom. So we're casting off social oppress, uh, oppressors, and we're casting off political oppressors. And we think that, that, uh, that by casting off political oppressors, that, that we can make things better just by engineering as well, without dealing with the cause, the human heart. And you can see how well that went in the, early, the first half of the 20th century 
the bloodiest century of all time. By casting off the old guard, we invited in Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin. We began in trying to make everything even and not admitting that life is lumpy. We thought that we could get things fair. Well, you see, we've got a different model, and the model is the Trinity. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, come to live life in our midst, to invite us into a different kind of way of being, a different kind of relationship, a way of relating to God the way God relates to God. You notice that any time you see uh, Jesus and the Godhead and the Holy Spirit, they're all deferring to one another. It's called perichoresis. It's the idea that, you know, when, when you know, and, and I will tell you this, uh, cyclists are this way. If, if you ride, uh, if you ride uh, with, with some of these guys who ride around town, they all are saying that the other person is better than they are, right? I mean, it's just in the culture. I don't know what it is, but uh, you, you, you would think that I knew how to ride a bike by the people who I'm riding with, and I can't keep up with them, but they'll, tell, they'll say the opposite. It's all sandbagging. Anyway, I, I, I'm, now I'm just sort of trying to make myself feel better here, but... But you see the point, you see the image of this, that, that Jesus proceeds from the Father and the Father, the Father and the Son. The, the Holy Spirit proceeds from both. You see, this is a different way of relating. It's to take your strength to serve. Your strength is to serve. I don't have time for this. We, we need to move on, but... is acceptable to God through Jesus. He has a place to stand. He stands in eternity working for our salvation. He has a lever big enough, God in flesh, to put all the way into human life, just as this table represents, that the bread and the cup of the new covenant, poured out, broken, given, that you and I may be renewed in the likeness of Christ and sent into the world, living stones, that's you and me. So this morning, I invite you to this table, that as we receive this bread and drink from this cup, we may experience a magnificent exchange of our sinful nature for his perfect nature. The most became the least, that the least may be immune with the most.
Tyler, would you lead us in prayer? Grateful. We are thankful for all that you've done for us, that you came near to us. So, Lord, as we celebrate with you, uh, would you come meet us at this table by faith? Would you strengthen us and sustain us for the days ahead as we celebrate that you have come, you died, you rose from the dead, and you're coming again. We take this bread and cup and use it for your glorious purpose.